tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we'll be interviewing my brother and one of my favorite reporters in the entire world, Jonathan Martin, a.k.a. J. Mart. What's happening? But before I get to Jonathan, I've got to talk about Arizona Senator and Chief Obstructionist Kirsten Sinema. In case you missed it this past Friday and over the weekend, the White House and congressional Democrats have largely coalesced around the bipartisan infrastructure deal and a special spending package, also known as the Bill Better Act. That will come down from the $3.5 trillion originally proposed to between $1.9 trillion and $2.3 trillion. That's still a hell of a lot of money. Even Joe Manchin has proposed $1.5 trillion as a counterproposal. But your other holdout is Cinema, who has not countered with anything. And she has no real plan other than to seek attention. While Democrats were in Washington negotiating this package and figuring out how to get to a number that could get the final two votes in the Senate, Cinema was in Arizona at a fundraiser. And to make matters worse, she already put out mail pieces to her constituents talking about her role in getting the infrastructure proposal passed when the only thing holding up infrastructure is her vote that keeps both pieces of legislation from passing as there's always been an understanding that both bills need to pass. I know we talk a lot about democratic dysfunctionality on this show, and it's a real issue. But in this case, Democrats are generally aligned outside of a few squeaky wheels in the House that will quiet down eventually. What we really have are Democrats versus Manchin and Cinema at this point. And while they're both attention seekers who have no real policy objections to any of this, at least Joe Manchin pretends like he's trying to do something other than carry the water for corporate interests. Kirsten Cinema doesn't even pretend. I hope that President Biden and Vice President Harris intend to schedule trips to Arizona to make their case directly to Arizonans because their senator is playing games with the president's agenda and by extension jeopardizing Democratic majorities in 2022. And to be completely honest with you, we ain't got no time for that. So that's that on that. Now on to our conversation with Jonathan J. Mart Martin. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I'm looking good in my throwback Obama shirt. This is from St. Patty's Day. I saw that. Yeah, St. Patty's Day 07. I mean, it's been, this is this has been a, a while. But today I have my good friend from the New York Times, Jonathan Martin. We affectionately call him Jay Martin. He knows uh, football. He knows barbecue. He knows the South better than anybody's business. Uh, he also is a new author, which we'll get into a little bit. 
But Jmart, as we kick this thing off, walk yes. us through the arc of your career. We start every episode like this, but yeah. talk us into how you got into political reporting and walk us through the key stops in your career from the National Journal to yeah. the National Review right. to Politico and now the New York Times and now future best-selling author. So um I always loved politics and history and got a great opportunity to work uh, at a place called The Hotline, which was uh, owned by National Journal and was run by a guy named Chuck Todd back in the day. A guy, uh, a guy Chuck named Chuck Todd. Uh, <laughs> Chuck's gone on to some, some uh, uh, other pursuits. It was a, just a great political education, uh, learning how to you know cover races, seeing how races were covered. For some of the younger folks out there, you know, Back in the day, um, it wasn't easy to sort of see the political news in, you know, Kansas or Washington or Arizona if you were in D.C. or New York um, uh, before the Internet came along. And so the hotline was a sort of daily compendium of political news from all over the country. And folks in politics read it, read it voraciously. Um, so that's where I got my start. Um, learned a lot up there on the ground floor and then um, had a fantastic experience working for John Harris and Jim Van de Heij at Politico. Uh, we were lucky at Politico. We started end of 06, start of 07, and it was right at the outset of the 08 presidential campaign. So, you know, it's better to be lucky than good, I guess. We were both, I think, good, but also really lucky because we just happened to be there covering this epic Democratic primary between Obama and Hillary, and then also covering John McCain's comeback, uh, getting the nomination, then obviously putting Sarah Palin on the ticket. So we had like an amazing story for two years to cover uh, during that campaign. So it was it was a great start. And then uh, I've been with the Times now for about uh, eight and a half years. Came over in, uh, in 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 thirteen. So it's been a lot of fun. Look, if you enjoy the covering politics, if you enjoy you know traveling around the country, uh, you know getting paid for it, talking to people. It's a pretty good gig, you know, um, <laughs> and you do a lot of talking to a lot of different people. I, I swear everybody probably thinks J Mart is one of their best friends. Let me ask you a question. This not in, my, not, not in my purview, uh, not something I was going to ask about. But tell me the impact of this new company that just bought Politico and what effect yeah. that's going to have on the landscape. Yeah, and what effect that's know, gonna have on Politico? for it. Uh, but just like, you know, reading the stories, I mean, it seems like it's a real it's a real vote of confidence in Politico and sort of testament to what. Uh, Robert Albright and John Harris uh, have built up there. And so uh, my hat's off to them. And, uh, it, you know, nice, nice piece of change, too. So uh, <laughs> that helps. But, you know, I, look, I, I think that there's a hunger for, you know, fact based political news and, and reporting. And obviously, they're providing that. So um, it's sort of, sort of um, I think, fascinating that it's coming from overseas. But it just goes to show that, you know, the sort of, you know, demand for reporting on politics is, is global. Let's talk about Joe Biden for a second. And this, and let's, before we get to Joe Biden, tell us about this book you're writing because you skip, you yeah. left that part out. Tell us about the book you're writing. When yeah, is it coming so out? I hope all of your listeners will will buy it when it comes out next year, and we'll have pre order info here uh, before long. I hope. So my colleague at the Times, Alex Burns, who I also work with at Politico, great guy. Uh, he and I have covered every presidential together since 2008. So we go back. Um, we are doing a book for Simon and Schuster that is basically a political history of the last two years. Uh, sort of, we think, a definitive account of this period of immense strain in American politics and a sort of period of, of tumult like the country hasn't seen in a long time. 
So, you know, we didn't want to do a kind of traditional campaign book, Bakari, because we kind of felt like the aftermath of the campaign and obviously January 6th was as significant, if not more significant in history than the campaign itself. And but we you signed this con- you signed this book contract before January 6th, didn't you? Yeah, uh, we, we signed this deal with Simon Schuster in the summer of 2020. And um, we were focused on the campaign then, but obviously it became clear that we had a bigger story to tell. And we think that we're, we're telling that story, trying to do justice to this extraordinary period uh, in political history. The Trump administration, the Biden administration, the period after the election, January 6th, the Congress, governors. Um, it's just, there's so much to tell, and we're really excited about it. It'll come out next year. Not exactly sure when, but we'll, we'll come back and tell you soon. Yeah, they're not going to let you finish. They're going to be like, nah, add this. This just happened. Go ahead and it's like, like the election. Of by, you know, it just, <laughs> yeah, it's it just more and more material, man. That's I the know. challenge, actually, is like, it's not getting stuff. It's like, what do you lose? Because there's so much material and we have a lot of reporting. We spent, you know, hours and hours talking to folks, uh, Democrats and Republicans both. So um, I think it's going to be a really rich account. So keep, I mean, keep you can write it. You can write a whole book about Corey Lewandowski, just a book. Just one book, let alone how you're going to factor him into a few pages of, of your book now. So, yeah, I mean, the, the sort of Trump world and the Trump network, I mean, you sort of see it right with Corey Lewandowski and then um, with the um, uh, the former press secretary and chief of Jason Staff, Melania Trump, Stephanie oh, Grisham. Stephanie right? Grisham. Yeah. So, but that captures Bakari, the two different paths, right? So, the one school is, you know, Trump kind of marginalizes you, but you claw your way back in by staying loyal to him. And you can sort of keep a, you know, a nice book of business as Corey did by staying loyal to the guy, even though he, he fired you. The flip side and the other approach is the Stephanie Grisham approach, which is like, you know, you're kind of marginalized. You're not going to be able to sort of cash in by, by getting a TV uh, contract. So what do you do? You flip, right? Yeah. <laughs> you cash out another way, but you still cash you out. Cash out another way. So look, let's talk about the chaos in Washington because that at this moment, you're a good lawyer, man, because you have a good, concise way to deliver your pitch. You cash out another way. That's right. <laughs> you got to surmise it. Like five words before I was doing it. Like Anyways, go ahead. Let's talk about the chaos in Washington. Uh, yeah. For our listeners that aren't plugged into why it seems like Democrats are tanking their own president's domestic right. agenda. Give us the elevator summary of these two bills, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Build Back Better Act, and how we got to this point now where it is where it is standstill. Democrats control everything and they look like they're about to tank their own president. I think the short version of this to try and put it in Bakari sellers like uh, concise terms is they got very narrow majorities. They have a one seat majority in the Senate. And that one seat is by virtue of the fact that you have a vice president to break the tie um, in an equally divided Senate. They've got basically a three seat majority in the House. And it's actually closer Bakari to 50 50 in the House because you got a handful of sort of moderate to conservative Democrats um, who, are, who are not um, not super enthusiastic about this second, more more comprehensive piece of legislation. So I think that's the short answer is just they just don't have the sort of margins. My friends at Punchbowl had a good um, a good way of capturing this earlier in the week. They said trying to do an FDR scale agenda without FDR majorities. That's just tough. I mean, you served in the state house. Numbers are everything. And um, they just don't don't have it. And so because of that, 
they're trying to kind of walk this this you know high wire like 100 feet up in the air uh and it's not easy right because you're trying to do a really aggressive comprehensive bill the so-called reconciliation bill and just so your listeners know there's a lot of elements in it it's not even clear what elements are going to be included in the final bill but it you know it, it's it's pre-k education it's um some climate policies it potentially is going to be more college tuition assistance perhaps free community college so it, it's a wide-ranging piece of legislation and because of that it's hard to get buy-in from all 50 uh, democratic senators right you know, all of them like some of it, but, you know, what do you include? What do you exclude? And that's where it gets difficult. That's the holdup is trying to get some kind of a deal on figuring out what to include, what to exclude, and how much it costs, all told. And because they haven't gotten a deal on that yet in the Senate, in the House, you've got this holdup over the infrastructure bill, which is, you know, much more popular across party lines. You've got 19 votes in the Senate over the summer from Republicans, in addition to all the uh, Democrats. But the progressives shrewdly uh, in the House recognized, you know, we have some leverage here. We care more about that second, more comprehensive bill that I was just mentioning. So let's hold up the infrastructure bill and try and use that to ensure that we get some kind of agreement, something in writing on the, the second larger bill so that you know, we're not just going to pass this infrastructure bill and then call it a year. So basically what they're doing is sort of holding up the infrastructure bill to ensure that they can get their that second larger bill, which they care about more. I mean, that was actually really good. Have you done TV before? <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. I know, so this is my question, and this yeah. is something I can't figure out, and I'm usually, I'm usually really, really, really good at this, but what really motivates Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema? If your mansion is it anything yeah. other than attention? Uh, if your cinema folks in Arizona want both these bills, I mean, right. is she trying to be like John McCain? I mean, I, yeah. I don't necessarily get it. And by the way, just so you know, yeah. I think that I blame all of this on Cal Cunningham because I don't really think they matter as much if Cal Cunningham doesn't text oh, the way no, he does. No, I, I'm like, that's a really important point is the Democrats had the opportunity last year to win. Uh, a handful of other Senate races, and and they fell short, including North Carolina, where you had a, obviously a Democratic nominee who uh, had an extramarital affair that came out and helped sink his campaign. Um, and we have a candidate who has thirteen million dollars left in her account yeah. in, and look, in Maine. I think what happened last year is that it became a pretty good Republican year 
it was just a bad year for Trump, right? I mean, this is why Trump's claims of election fraud, beyond just being obviously made up, are also just like preposterous, right? Like it was actually a pretty good year for his party down ballot. They gained House seats in a way that nobody thought they would. They would have kept the Senate were it not for what Trump did in Georgia. So like, how can you have an election conspiracy where like, you know, the rest of your party does pretty well, but you lose? It just like doesn't make any sense. Anyways, um, but no, like that's the whole issue, right? Instead of having 52 seats, 53 seats, they got 50. And so they're now reliant upon two senators. Look, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, like there would have been a bunch more Joe Manchins and Kirsten Sinemans in the Senate. It was like a much more heterodox place. You had liberal Republicans, you know, one of the first black senators since Reconstruction, Edward Brooke, Massachusetts, was like a liberal Republican, right? You had conservative Democrats, um, you know, for, for years, uh, folks like Sam Nunn next door to you in Georgia. And that was kind of the rule for a long time. What has happened now, we're just in a much more kind of red and blue uh, kind of political environment. It's more polarized. The parties are much more pure. And so because of that, when you've got folks who are, take a different path, like Sima Manchin, or in the Republican case, like Murkowski, they can really stand out. And so how to answer your question. What's their motivation? What is their motivation? I mean, because right now you have to, it's not like these bills aren't popular. Okay. These, both of these bills, including the social infrastructure, are wildly popular. Yes. So what's so, the alternative? You, you don't pass anything? So, so I think you have to separate the two individuals because they're often linked together. I think they're, they're a little bit different. I think Manchin's case is he does not like just the idea of spending a lot more money. There's not much, I think, beyond that. He has some, some inflation concerns. But again, I think his, his issue is mostly just the sort of size, the size of the bill. And I also think he does have concerns about what he calls the entitlement mentality. Of, of folks relying on government, which is sort of the way he's put it. So he's a different kind of, of Democrat, to uh, put it mildly. I think Sinema is a more complicated case, Bakari. Um, <laughs> That's a fucking understatement. <laughs> her state, her state <laughs> historically, fairly conservative, elected mostly Republicans, but not all Republicans, gotten a lot more competitive. And I think her operating approach is that my state is still more red than it is purple. And I got to be mindful of that. I also think that she does like the attention. She likes being in the mix and she likes the more hell she catches from the left. I think she likes giving it back to them. You know, there know, there's a clip of the weekend, Bakari, about her being, being followed uh, into the bathroom. Uh, by the way, by, I, by the way, my progressive friends, like I'm with you until you follow people in the bathroom. That's just weird and inappropriate. Like, stop. So. You know, she rep- replied in this statement, this sort of blistering um, uh, statement, sort of you know making the point about you know um, this kind of politics goes way too far. Leaders have to call it out. So look, I mean, I think she's fine, sort of in this in this position, um, and I think she believes it burnishes her credentials as somebody who is independent. Now, by the way, she think- also she also sent out had mail pieces that were ready to hit, like the bill had been signed in. Yeah. That hit what, what, this weekend. I mean, here's what's not clear to me though: is can you still get away with that kind of an approach in a much more polarized environment? All right, so you know, like, does that approach help her with some independents and some Republicans? Sure, but 
does that matter if you can't get renominated in your own party because you've alienated your own party so much? And if you get renominated, could you get independents and Republicans to vote for you in a general? And would Democrats stay home? Again, like, like this is a great political science experiment. She's not off again until 24. But I'm really curious about how this approach works in, in, in today's political world. You know, but but Mark Kelly's not doing this same shit that Kirsten Sinema's doing. They're like, and by the way, let me let me no, just for the for the for the record. But think about the, I mean, but hold on, let me just let me just tell yeah, folks for the record. Yeah. I've known Kirsten Sinema since she was a state senator in Arizona. Right. She was a part of the Young Elected, the YEO, um, Young Elected Officials Network, and she and my good friend Andrew Gillum, if I'm not mistaken, were chairs of the organization right. uh, when we were all Young Elected. Our paths have gone in many different ways. Uh, so I, I'm not talking about someone who I've always known her, known her politics. I just don't know what the hell she's doing now. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, I was going to say it is a very different approach to Mark Kelly, who is, you know, consciously trying to be much more of a team player, occasionally speaks out and tries to sort of establish some of his own independence, but usually does that in kind of a prepared statement in a very cautious way. It's, it's very different. No, I, mean, I was just thinking about cinema, and I was trying to think of like a Republican version um, uh, of this. And I was thinking about like, let's say Lindsey Graham in South Carolina. Let's say that he had not, um, he had not, you know, like taken a more conservative stance on issues and had, you know, been a loud proponent of immigration reform, legislation to address climate change, even some gun control measures uh, potentially. You know, could you in South Carolina as a Republican still find your way to renomination by doing that stuff and then survive the general with a coalition of independents and Democrats and some Republicans? I think it'd be tough. It's to hard, but, but he does. He he actually I think that making her the Lindsey Graham of the left is actually kind of brilliant because he actually it, it works for him. Well, but here's the thing, though, is that if you look at Lindsey Graham and McCain, both before their primaries, they made sure that they got right with where the party base was on some core issues. You know, I mean, Lindsey Graham in 2019 and 2020 was not talking about immigration reform. right? No, No, and he nestled up to Trump. He was Trump's best friend. And he befriended Trump, which helped him survive the attacks about his old positions. Exactly. Right. Right. Oh, my God. I mean, this is just. This is why you're here, because this is a mess. And you're the only person I know who can break through all of this as we kind of meander. What we haven't seen, Bakar, is like somebody who tries to pull this off as an independent. You know, could you like get reelected to the Senate without being affiliated with one of the two parties? I mean, obviously, Angus King and Bernie Sanders are independents, but they affiliate with with Democrats. Murkowski Um, is an independent and she didn't affiliate with her Republican again now. But yes, no, I mean, she's an example of somebody who in a unique state was able to get a, a reelected as a write-in candidate, which is extraordinary if you think about it. Um, but, you know, does that still work? Um, Only if you have and, a name like Murkowski yeah. in Alaska. Does, I mean, and that right. name is not like a one generation name. That is a generation. Yeah, yeah. Name. no, exactly. Let me right. ask you this. But, let, but, let me ask you, let me ask you this question yeah, that's, that's been please, bothering please. me. Democrats, when they win elections, they stop campaigning. Right. Donald Trump was having rallies all over the place. This is the comparison. I'm not saying that Donald Trump was campaigning on an agenda that was worth anything. I'm just saying that that's the comparison. Why hasn't Joe Biden, for his signature agenda item, utilized the bully pulpit 
And, or, why hasn't he utilized Kamala Harris to go and work some of her former colleagues in the United States Senate like he was sent to do for TARP? Or send her out to the black community, which is your base, because I'm going to tell you a secret. Nobody knows what's in any of these bills. You know, I was talking about this with a friend the other day. Was it was saying, not It was not me, by the way. It was not. It was somebody else, but who was not quite as smart as you, but close. And we're saying, how many Americans do you think could tell you anything that was in the American Rescue Plan, which passed in August, in uh, March, rather, let alone that a major COVID stimulus bill passed in March, right? That's not that long ago. That was a sweeping piece of legislation, right? Um, expanded the, the child tax credit. I mean, that alone is going to have enormous ramifications. It's kind of forgotten already, at least among the general public, I think. No, this is the challenge Democrats have. And they said after Obama that, that they regretted this, uh, which was not selling their accomplishments more, not pitching, in Biden's case, the ARP that passed in March. Um, you don't you don't see the kind of aggressive salesmanship of that um, that I think you would have thought by now you would have seen. And to your point, if they do ever get infrastructure passed and the second more comprehensive bill, you know, are they going to pitch it? Are they going to go on the road with it? Um, I mean, but what are we waiting on? Like, I mean, like go hit, go hit these places now. I mean, it's so frustrating because people did not know what was in the Affordable Care Act until Republicans started trying to repeal it. Right. And so this is, this is just, where we are. And it's one of my largest frustrations with this administration that they just don't utilize the pieces. And I understand it's COVID, but hell, you know, we had 75,000 people watching Troy and South Carolina play in the worst football game I've seen in a long time this past Saturday. Um, no, I think COVID initially, Bacard, was the issue. But um, yeah, no, I'm surprised that there's not been more aggressive salesmanship. And not just from the White House, but from you know, members of Congress, governors, too. Uh, I thought by now we'd see a more comprehensive kind of, you know, the American comeback tour. I think what created a challenge was Delta, you know, and I think the reemergence of COVID start of the summer or midsummer, rather, I think made it harder for Biden and Democrats to make the case that America's back. You know, as long as Americans are still dealing with COVID, I think it's harder for them to say, the bad old days are gone. Good times are here again. Right. So, yeah. So tell me this. What happens? I mean, you, you've watched this show. Yeah. T- 2008, you've seen these major bills. I think they both pass. I'm going to tell you two words is why I think they both pass. Yeah. Stinny Horton. I'm just joking. Nancy Pelosi. Other reason that these bills pass. I thought you were going to say Jim Clyburn. No. J- did, by the way, since this is actually airing today. Jim Clyburn, breaking news, endorsed Tamika Isaac Devine for the next mayor of the city of Columbia. But that's not the breaking oh, news, although that's go. huge. He did it while wearing a Easter pink blazer today, which is so fashion forward. I absolutely love the congressman for that. But talk to me about do these yeah. bills pass? Do you have as much faith? I think that I mean, you are a journalist. so I'm not asking for here's an opinion. Case, per se. Here's the case for why they will. And I'll give you four words. Too big to fail. Too big to fail. They cannot afford to come up with nothing because the political consequences of that would be so immense. They'll raise questions about their competence, their unity, their dedication to a, a sort of shared policy agenda. It'd be devastating. And I think that kind of sink or swim, we're all in this together, 
will eventually prompt him to, to get some kind of a deal on both. But right now, obviously, it's looking uncertain as to when that's going to happen or if it could happen at all. Um, not to be the dead horse, Bakari. I just think in an era of polarized politics where so much of this is red versus blue, up versus down, the team blue led by Joe Biden, his fate determines the party's fate. If he's at 54 approval next year uh, or 44, like that's going to shape governors, members of Congress in their in their elections next year. So it's in their interest politically to give him wins so that they can survive. I just like the idea of separating yourself from the party leader or the party label, I think is just so darn hard in this period. And you sink or swim together, you know? I mean, that you, you just answered my next question because I was going to push forward to uh... – you're doing good with this. I mean, you must. Have, I mean, this is this is what you do when you actually aren't are on inside inside politics. You just knock them out rapidly. Keep them coming, man. Twenty twenty two. Twenty twenty two. I mean, look. Before we get to the elections, Democrats haven't made any progress on justice issues. The reason that a lot of Black folk went to the polls was criminal justice reform. People right. were all in the streets and voting rights. Are we ever going to get to a point where? Kirsten Cinnamon and Joe Manchin, who were just giving cover to people like John Tester and Mark Warner, which I found out to be decently ironic and funny because they just are the ones yelling and screaming. But are we ever going to get a streamlined filibuster reform so that we can pass any of these issues? Or are we just not going to have these justice issues ever pass under Joe Biden administration? The story answers, I don't know. I think that um, there would have to be some kind of a compromise to get these bills done, even without the filibuster, I think even getting to 50 um, could take some, some compromise. And I just don't know if they're willing to get rid of the filibuster. But look, let's say, Makari, that they get these two bills, infrastructure and, and reconciliation, done this calendar year. They go in for Christmas. The first half of next year before the campaign is really in full swing, the, the pressure to get something done on Democrats on those issues is going to be immense, right? What are they going to do? What are they going to say? Can you blame the filibuster forever? But I have a question for you, Bakari. Should Democrats in the summer of 2020, should they have taken a half a loaf and tried to pass something with Tim Scott that Trump would have signed into law on policing issues? That's a difficult question to answer. But knowing what I know now, if we could have codified Trump's executive order, Right. Then the answer is yes. I would have never guessed that Tim would have campaigned against his own ideas then. I mean, he is I mean, the the morphosis of watching him be now against a registry of bad actors when he sponsored that back with Walter Scott is just surreal. You know, Democrats made the bet last summer of we can get a more comprehensive, substantive bill on policing when we have the White House back and both chambers of Congress next year. And so we're not going to take half a loaf, but now they got, they got nothing at all. And to your point, it's important because Tim Scott has backed off his own, his own views. <laughs> have you but, ever seen somebody negotiate? But like, it just, it just does make like you wonder, this? you know, what they could have done last year in the moment where obviously both parties were eager to do something. And obviously it wasn't near the, 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 the extent that, that you wanted to go, but anyways. Last question for you. 2022, yes, let's actually talk about these numbers. I don't think Democrats keep the House. What do you, what say you? You know, very tight 
majority as is right now, I think it's going to be difficult for them. That's that's not shocking to any House Democrats. I think they get the history of a um, first midterm elections is typically tough for the party power. So not, yeah, only, not I mean, only that, but I think that if we we have to educate folk as we go along. So anytime we're talking about the elections in 2022, we also have to go back to the fact that Barack Obama's Democratic Party got slaughtered in state legislative seats. Right. And that is still uh, remnants of today and in fact, you know, and in effect today. And right. because Republican legislators are drawing these lines, it's going to be a lot more difficult. And, and courts well, are gutted, too. I mean, for 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 Democrats, 2010 was the original sin, because uh, that's when you had a lot of these Republicans who won control of these state houses who drew the lines for the next 10 years. Um, and because last year. As we were saying a minute ago, Bakari turned out to be a bad Trump year, but a pretty good Republican year. Um, two different things. They can draw them for the next ten years in a lot of states. You know, mm. I mean, you just think about Texas, right? And how Texas would look different if the down ballot, you know, suburban Biden vote would have also gone for for Democrats running for the state house and state senate. You know. Last question for me for you because I know what you're excited to do. I know you very well. And I can mark. Well, I'm about to do that too. I'm. We got this new restaurant close to my house called The Office. Shout out to Randy Hood. It is a delicious place. They actually bake their wings. They don't fry them, and it's good. Um, I'm gonna go have a white zombie and and eat some wings during the middle of the day, and won't be judged. Won't be judged for it either. So, um, I know what you're gonna do because I know you so well. Yeah. Tell me about Herschel Walker for United States Senate in Georgia because you're gonna camp out in and around Atlanta. And then you're going to Savannah and you're going to get the New York Times to pay for it. And you're going to write all types of pieces because this is going to be the Seminole race. I already know you. I know how this is going to play out. The only part that you missed was going to Athens on game days. Of the fall, <laughs> right? the, I mean, that was the only part that you missed out. That Otherwise, is, dude, campaigning with him in Athens at a game yeah. day in the fall is going to be crazy. I mean, just think about this, though, for a Southern politics story. One of the most iconic college football players in SEC history versus the former pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. And both of them are black. That checks out, yes. I bet that's incredible, right? <laughs> that's insane. But one of them lives right. in Texas. I, like, I mean, one of them ain't even from the state he's running in, but go ahead. <laughs> um, no, and like all happening in Georgia, which I know folks like you in South Carolina don't like to admit this, but you went to college in Atlanta, so maybe you could admit it. Well, Atlanta sort of like widely seen as the sort of capital of the South, certainly no uh, the capital of. Um, it's definitely. Um, I mean, yeah. it, I mean, in, in Atlanta, to go one step further, has replaced Washington D.C. as the capital of Black America. You know, I actually once had a conversation with somebody that, that you know about this topic. Her name was Kamala Harris, <laughs> um, and she made a case for Oakland. Uh, on that on that front. Yeah, no, she loses that battle. But that's okay. I mean, she listens to the show. So she yeah. will call me and we will have this debate. And I, I no, think but, but on, on Georgia though, I mean you just think about the history involved. Yeah, that's sort look of culture. You. You're already uh, preparing your emails to the editors at New York Times so you can yeah. move to I Savannah. Think take multiple trips. <laughs> multiple trips. You know? All right, Jay All right, Mark. I, you gotta promise me one thing, man. When your book is done. Yeah, we'll come back. No, I'm going to have it here with me. We're going to hold it up, do it the right way. Thank you so much well, for yeah, coming Alex, on to Picard. Come on. It'll be fun. All right, brother. Oh, yeah, we could definitely get Alex. We'll do both of you guys. Have a great one, brother. Enjoy. All right, Picard. Thanks. Thanks, Al. See you. Bye-bye.
Before I let you go, I've got to salute Tampa Bay Buccaneers quarterback Tom Brady. In case you missed it on Sunday, Tom Brady returned to Foxborough and beat his old team and his old coach, Bill Belichick. Brady also hit another milestone with his victory where he is now the only NFL player to beat every single NFL team. And to do it in Foxborough against your old team and your old coach where they played a tribute to their old quarterback and cheered the guy on as he ran onto the field was something I know I'd never seen before. While I don't share Tom Brady's politics, I don't really know what they are. I guess it depends on who's at the White House. I can acknowledge a goat when I see one. There should be baby goats all up and down streets in Tampa Bay because that's what TB12 is. And that's that on that. We'll take a break for the rest of the week. And next Tuesday, we get a week off. Everybody needs a vacation. But we'll see you all next Thursday.